Well, good morning, everyone. I want to begin today with a, uh, a strange fact. I don't know if it's strange, but I'll tell you anyway. I'm not much of a crier, uh, but I do find my eyes filling with tears in this one particular circumstance. It's at the end of any movie, doesn't matter how good it is, doesn't matter how sad or happy it is, at the end of any movie when I'm on a plane. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's a feeling of fear, if it's the air pressure, I don't know what it is, but I'm always crying at the end of movies on planes. I don't know if it happens to anyone else. That's, that's crying. But what about weeping? Weeping is something different. Weeping is something that flows from deep emotion, often tears of immense sorrow or, or emptiness. And in this first chapter, I don't know if you caught it, in this first chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah weeps. He doesn't only weep, he mourns. And he fasts as well. Why does Nehemiah weep? Well, the answer to that question will take us to the heart of this book and what God is teaching us in, these, in this series. And to understand it, we need to zoom right in on Nehemiah's situation. This is how the book of Nehemiah starts. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. It's the, it's the 20th year, we find out uh, later, the 20th year of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes, which places uh, this book around 445 BC. Uh, this uh, is what the world would have kind of looked like at that time. And you can see there on the map, Susa and Jerusalem, they're about 1,500 kilometres um, apart. And Hanani and the other men have come from Jerusalem to Susa, uh, the winter capital of the Babylonian, now the Persian Empire. Uh, the exiles that they uh, give a report about, of course, are the Israelites who've been taken or had been taken to Babylon about a generation earlier. That was the time when Jerusalem was captured its walls broken down, the temple destroyed, and many of the people moved off into exile. Only the poorest were left in the land. But that seemingly unstoppable Babylonian empire was toppled, and the Persians took over from the Babylonians, and as they did, they changed foreign policies. They decided they would resettle those people back into their lands who had been deported, who had been exiled. Now, here is a picture of an amazing artefact called uh, the Cyrus Cylinder. This cylinder is in at the British Museum right now, and it uh, records the decree that King Cyrus made uh, for people who had been deported to go back to their lands. And that's exactly what we read about in the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra is really the first half of a book called Ezra Nehemiah, uh, which is probably all written by the same person. But in our English Bibles, they've been separated out into two different books. So the book we're reading, Nehemiah, is like act three of a three-act play in Ezra Nehemiah. In act one, at the beginning of Ezra, there's a guy called Zerubbabel who leads a first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple but it doesn't quite reach its former glory. Then in Act 2, Ezra himself returns to Israel and he helps people uh, get back to living under God's law, but they're still not quite living as they should. And now, at the beginning of Nehemiah, we're at the beginning of Act 3, when Nehemiah gets this message from his brother and the men with him. 
those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. The people are back, but things aren't going well. Broken walls and broken gates for these people represented very physically the kind of danger that they were in. In this lockdown, I guess we're uh, pretty aware of how walls can protect us, um, protect us from a, a virus. That's the whole point of, of staying at home at the moment. That's the whole theory behind it. For these Israelites, it was, I guess, more than a virus that was um, outside the gates. Uh, it was uh, uh, rogue forces, people who wanted to, to, to steal and destroy. Um, they couldn't establish proper trade without having control of the city. The city was broken. And that's why uh, what, what Nehemiah heard. But is that enough to make Nehemiah weep? I mean, what's to say that they shouldn't just accept that situation? Sure, it sounds like it's not a great way to live, but why should they expect any different? If our lives don't go as we think they should, why should we expect any better? What's wrong with uh, living in fear, actually? What's wrong with a short life? What's wrong with an unjust world? Nehemiah, he's safe back in Babylon anyway. So why is he weeping? Nehemiah weeps for a deeper reason. Because of what he knows of God, he understands the reality that our world is not as it's supposed to be. Uh, this is a, a picture of a, a painting called The Last Supper by Giorgio Vasari. Now, you could be excused for thinking that's a piece of driftwood. Um, it is very old, but also it was damaged by floodwaters, uh, which meant that lots of the paint started to peel off, so they put some paper across the face of it to stop the, uh, the paint peeling off anymore. Um, so it's knobbly, it's distorted. It, you look at it and it's very obvious that this is not how it is supposed to be. So Nehemiah knows that this is not how the world is supposed to be. He knows that our world needs restoration. See, the Bible tells us that God had uh, a plan for us humans from the very start, that great trouble and disgrace, that's not just a fact of life. That's not good. Full life is what God intends. Um, and these three elements are, are crucial to the full life uh, that the Bible talks about. Uh, being in a good place, a safe place, being in a good place with other people, being in a good place with God. Listen to how they track through. Right back at the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, there were people living in a good place, in rich relationship with each other, and particularly with God. However, things went very wrong. The ideal of people living together with God was lost. And since then, there's been a restoration project underway. Skipping forward from Adam and Eve, but still thousands of years before we get to Nehemiah, we see God's intention for this project through the promises he makes to Abraham. Promises that address what a full life looks like. A place to be with God and his people. He tells Abraham that he's going to give him a particular piece of land. He's going to grow a nation out of him and that he'll be his God. And God also tells Abraham that he's going to bring blessing, restoration to the whole world through Abraham. That's how this project's going to expand. And so those promises for restoration, uh, 
they held on to by successive generations of Abraham's family. And it, it begins. His descendants do indeed find themselves in the land that was promised. They do find themselves living with God uh, as he dwells uh, in the temple in the middle of the city. But it never quite reaches the heights of the promises of the beginning. It's like a masterpiece that's started to be put back together. but It's kind of been shabbily restored at this point. There are constant threats from surrounding nations and eventually the people are exiled, no longer with a place of their own, unable to live properly together or with God, miles from bringing restoration out to the rest of the world. So that's where Nehemiah finds himself living a half full life in Babylon. And so he weeps. Our world is not God's ideal either. That's the reality that we need to understand. So it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking, actually, restoration isn't necessary. I think for some of us, life looks pretty good to us. I think this is what we do. We compare. We say, well, comparatively, my life is pretty good, which in the the wealthy country and the wealthy area in which we live, that might be a fair statement. But there are two problems with that. Firstly, there's the problem of what that means for people whose lives are comparatively much less comfortable. People lacking basic necessities, ravaged by war, under surveillance, in jail, on the verge of succumbing to death. That's that's millions of people in our world. But secondly, it's the wrong comparison to make. When we're satisfied with the, the mediocrity of our lives right now, we're missing what God has really designed for us. Just imagine for a moment that lockdown was to extend another month or another year, maybe two years. Uh, More and more strains appear, the vaccines are not effective and we're in lockdown for a long time. Now, I don't want that to happen, but just imagine that it does. And imagine two years into this massive lockdown, we hear some people saying, you know what, this isn't so bad. Going to the park, that was overrated anyway. Or Christmas with the family, the extended family, Was that any good anyway? I don't miss that. Now that coping mechanism might be commendable. You might actually enjoy Christmas on your own. But does that mean that lockdown life is all that life could be? Of course not. It's a a poor imitation of what we're supposed to be doing. Though Nehemiah was comfortable in Susa, with a life that seemed pretty okay by the standards of the time, he wept. For days he fasted, he mourned, he knew that his life, our life now, is not what we're made for. And the one place that was supposed to be different, the people who were supposed to be the the forerunners of the solution, the conduit through which restoration would flow to the whole world, were God's people in Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah hears that that beacon of hope is flickering, fading, that's a tragedy. We need to know more and more deeply that there is something better because that's reality, God says. If we could see that more clearly, I think we'd be more saddened by what we see in our world, more aware of the need for restoration. We might weep a little more. Nehemiah knows that present reality, but he also knows something about the future. See, he didn't only weep and fast and mourn, He prayed because he knows that our world is being 
restored. He's saddened, and yet he's hopeful. See, before the exile even began, there was a promise of it to end. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years, the exiles would return to the land. You might remember uh, from our series earlier in the year that Daniel had read that prophecy too, and that he prayed to God that he'd remember that promise. Nehemiah knew that God had promised not to leave his people. He can see that though some people have physically returned to the land, things are far from right, and that's not what God promised. So he prays, he hopes. It's a bit like that painting that was damaged by flood. They thought it was hopelessly damaged, and it sat in storage for about half a century until there was new funding and refined techniques, and they thought, you know what? This is possible. We can actually restore this thing. And so the project was underway. Nehemiah knows that the project is underway. I think this too is easy for us to forget. See, maybe, maybe you feel acutely the not rightness of the way things currently are. But for you, the trap is more not having hope that things can be better. Perhaps the reality of our mortality has touched you recently. Uh, death, health issues. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed when you remember that there are people in our world who don't have enough to eat today or who have no family. Perhaps you've reached a point in your own life when you've dealt with disappointment after disappointment and you're just not sure it's going to get better. But it's not just that our world needs restoration. The restoration project is underway. This is the story of the Bible, that God has done something. God is doing something. Nehemiah knows this. This is why his despair leads to prayer. And as we'll see in the next chapters, action too. So which of those traps do you think you're more likely to slide into? Is it the one where you feel like the world's pretty good and doesn't need fixing? Well, actually, that's not reality. Or is it the one where you think that the world's so bad that it can't be fixed? So that's not actually the future. God wants us to trust that his design for us is very good and that he's not given up on it. But what we'll find as we read this book of Nehemiah is that this restoration project must go deeper than just the walls and the buildings of Jerusalem. It must go deeper than just the broken world that we're in. See, the content of Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 to 7 shows us where the real brokenness lies. Nehemiah starts, he says, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. That's what we've been talking about. The story of the Bible is that God is good and he loves people. God who keeps a covenant of love for those who love him and obey his commands. Did you hear who this covenant of love is for? And yet look down to verse 7, just a couple of sentences later. Nehemiah says, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. See, the major problem here is not that some king of a foreign superpower decided to invade Israel one time. It's not the uneven distribution of wealth in our world either, as if that's just how things are. It's that humans habitually turn against God. The damaged walls are a symbol of damaged hearts. 
Now, some of us, I'm sure, will not need convincing on this. But I think sometimes recognising this reality too is difficult. The reality that we have acted wickedly towards God. Again, we like to trick ourselves into unhelpful comparisons. We think, well, we're not that bad compared to other people. Or we see progress we've made and we think, oh, we're not as bad as what we used to be. But again, that's, that's the wrong comparison to make. God designed us for absolute purity. Not a, a boring, monotonous purity, but always full of love. Always full of joy, full of compassion, full of hope. That, that's not us right now. And it wasn't Nehemiah. And he knew it. So he confesses. He takes responsibility and ownership for his own wickedness and his involvement in wickedness uh, in his community as well. He confesses on behalf of the Israelites as a whole and his father's house. The reality is that we need restoring. And we'll spend time in confession just, just after the sermon today. But there is a restoration project underway for our hearts. So Nehemiah comes before the Lord and he still hopes for restoration, even though he admits his wickedness, because he remembers what God had said. Have a look at verse, verse 8 there. God had said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, then I will gather the exiled people from there to bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So God always expected broken people wouldn't live as they should, but he promised a second chance. Nehemiah believes that there is hope for damaged human hearts in this restoration project. That's why he prays boldly to God. I wonder if this is the one that we find harder to acknowledge. Maybe, maybe you're all too aware of your own heart problem. Perhaps this strange reality of lockdown that we're in has exacerbated it. Like a, like a pressure cooker, when we're confronted by a whole bunch of abnormal pressures, different frustrations to potentially respond angrily to. Maybe you know the brokenness inside. Maybe it feels like that brokenness is unrepairable. But there is a deep heart restoration project going on. Nehemiah knows that he's part of the reason that this full life is in tatters. And yet... He asks God to give that life to him and to the people again. He grasps onto hope. And as we'll see, he acts on that hope too. The last verse of the chapter gives us a, a hint as to what is to come. In the very last verse of the chapter, it's revealed that Nehemiah is actually the cupbearer to the Persian king, a trusted and privileged position, a powerful position, a position that just might let him get involved in this project. Nehemiah cries out to God in sadness and hope and then considers what it is that he will do. And in these next chapters, as we go through this series, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, we'll see Nehemiah, he will restore the walls and the city to a degree. He and Ezra will call people back to living as God would have them live. And they do to a degree. But, spoiler alert, we get to the end of the book and Jerusalem is not fully restored. Restoration does not flow to the world or its people. Because while Nehemiah calls the people to personally live as they should, they never do. 
Though the city is restored, sort of, the hearts never are. The restoration of the external, it turns out, is not possible without restoring the inside, which all points to the fact that Nehemiah's project is part of a bigger project. There is another weeping man. That was our second Bible reading. Jesus weeps over that same city, Jerusalem. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus will weep over the fact that the people of this city are completely ignorant of God, losing their way from the ideal that God had planned. He'll weep because he knows that the wickedness of the people is such that our hearts are so broken that we'll end up putting to death the Son of God himself. Think of that. The one who made the world weeps over the tragedy of your broken heart. But then he'll act because he knows that God's project is underway. And his position isn't just cupbearer to the Persian king, he himself sat on the throne in heaven, a position that gives him the capacity not just to restore some walls, but to restore hearts. As we come to this book of Nehemiah, we'll see again and again the need for restoration. We'll see God's answer for those people at that time. And as they're involved, we'll see how we can be involved as well. But we'll see also an aspect of unfulfilled promise pointing to that better restoration in Jesus. But today, as we set out, the challenge for us is this. Do we have that same sadness and discontent when we look at our world and ourselves as we confront reality? But also, do we have real hope when we trust in the God of the Restoration Project? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you made us for full life, life with you. Thank you that you're about restoring your world, restoring us. As we read Nehemiah, help us appreciate your project more and more. Help us know how to be involved. We thank you so much that your ear is attentive to our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.